0: Exclusive Books is delighted to present another Homebrew podcast series, a celebration of South African writers and their books. Now 25 years old, Exclusive Books Homebrew 2022 is not the same old story, but a mirror and a window into South Africa, where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. A remarkable selection of history, fiction, memoirs, current affairs, and children's books on our most pressing and relevant topics from identity to feminism corruption to corporates self-love and identity and everything in between incisiveness, humour self-reflection and hope abound check out the full selection in all exclusive bookstores and online Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist and fearsome cruciverbalist Jonathan Anser Dr. Anne Bicard
1: is in a battle to outwit the Grim Reaper. She knows Grim always wins in the end, but she tries to keep him at bay for as long as possible. Anne is an emergency room doctor in a Johannesburg hospital, a job that sees her taking pink Lego bricks out of little boys' noses, searching for migrating nipples, buying lime milkshakes for wheezing grannies, using sign language to provide sex education to struggling lovers, and on one occasion helping a woman figure out if her cat was dead and whether she needed a death certificate for it. It was, and she didn't. Anne also tackles more serious cases of collapsed lungs, resuscitations, patients losing toes, having strokes, being attacked by bees, drowning, bleeding out, and having heart attacks. In addition to all the startling medical emergencies that burst through the ER door, Anne and her fellow masked healthcare warriors have been extremely busy dealing with the COVID flood. Despite it all, she has managed to write two books, Saving a Stranger's Life, which covers her work during the pandemic's first wave, and her latest book, Holding My Breath, further exploits of an ER doctor that deals with a few more waves, including one horrible wave that knocked her down and ripped her Achilles tendon. Welcome to the Homebrew Podcast, Anne. Can you please read us an extract from Holding My Breath?
2: Hi, and thanks so much for inviting me, and lovely to be with you. I'm going to read two little short bits. I'm going to read one little bit, which may be a little bit gruesome for some, but is uh, part of what the book's about, which is sort of an everyday thing that happens to me, which is just a a patient that comes in. And then I'm just going to read the last um, page or two of the book, just because I think it really kind of gives some insight into where we've been emotionally. So the first bit I'm going to read, The triage sister trots through the double doors, pushing a wheelchair. The lady there therein is weeping in pain. All the beds are full, so she travels the full length of the unit until she reaches the only vacant one. She halts the wheelchair at the foot of the empty bed, expecting the patient to get up and move over. Nothing, aside from the wailing, is happening. I'm working in the next cubicle, and I pull the curtain aside. I look down at the patient's feet and see that her right foot is facing backwards at the ankle. The sister follows my line of sight and, without expression, turns the wheelchair around and takes it to the resuscitation room. We will need to sedate the patient to put her ankle back into place, and time is of the essence. The displaced bone is causing pressure on the surrounding tissue and pushing the blood flow away, which can result in infection, disability, and even amputation. When I was newly qualified, I called the orthopod for a case exactly like this. He told me that he never wanted to see an X-ray of a displaced broken ankle. Always, he said sternly, reduce the dislocation as soon as you can sedate the patient. Don't waste time sending the patient to x rays. The ankle is clearly broken and dislocated. Restoring the correct anatomy is of the utmost urgency. I took his advice to heart and I've repeated it to many others over the years. I give the weeping lady some anesthetic gas while we get ready to sedate (laughs) her. She's crying too much to make good use of the inhalant, which works best if you take long pulls and hold it in your lungs. She is thrashing around, her foot flopping backwards and sideways with each movement. She keeps taking the mask off her face. It's so sore. It's so sore. Don't put it on the bed, she howls. But the alternative is to hold her lower leg up in the air, which leaves her foot dangling at an even more alarming angle. In record time, we get her attached to all the monitors, have the drip up, get our hands on a vial of propofol from the locked drug cupboard. We have our resuscitation equipment in place in case we go too far. Her head shoots up as I draw up the propofol. It's a murky white liquid and some just call it the milk of amnesia. Is that morphine? She asks. No, I reply. It's better than morphine. I want morphine. Her head sinks back. Please give me morphine. Mm, well, this is good stuff. It'll make you sleep. I tell her as I connect the syringe to the port on her intravenous line. Her head shoots up again. It isn't working yet. I haven't even given it yet, I tell her with a slight tease in my voice, but here it comes. I chase the milky stream through the tubing by opening the drip wide, and within seconds, her eyes glaze over. I move to the foot of the bed to do the reduction, but as I touch her skin, her eyes fly open. I'm not sleeping yet, she tells me. <sighs> I think. I go back to the drip, top up the purple hole. Her eyes glaze over again, but by the time I'm back in position at her foot, she's awake again. She is guzzling the drug up in a record time. I've had a few patients who can't off to sleep on a liquor propofol and just don't wake up. That's why we always have full resuscitation trolley next to the bed. Once you sleep too deeply, you can stop breathing, and so every sedation must have the equipment ready to breathe for the patient. I give the syringe of propofol to the nurse and ask her to give the remaining third. The first two thirds should be well out of her system, as propofol has a short half-life, which means it gets metabolized quickly. I stay at the ankle while she gives it, and as it slithers into her vein, I pull the foot and ankle back into alignment. It makes a satisfying crunch, and I hold it up by the big toe while the sister wraps the wool and plaster cast around the ankle. So that was that lady, fixed her ankle for her nicely. Um, And then I'm just going to read the last little bit, which is a, a page. There's an elderly lady standing at the lift. She has not pressed the button, and I wonder if it is COVID avoidance. I'm sure that the button is teeming with germs, but I push it anyway. With a ping, the lift arrives and the door sighs open. We step in, and she grasps my forearm. I'm terrified of lifts, she whispers urgently. I wonder why she didn't take the stairs, but I guess she's over 80 and they may be too much for her. Don't worry, I'm a doctor, I tell her. I'm amazed at the words as they are spoken and they hang awkwardly in the closed space. In 30 years, I have never used that phrase. And here it is, splendidly redundant. Doctor or not, if the mechanism breaks, we'll both plummet to our death. No out loud voice, I remind myself. Oh, thank goodness, she says, her eyes locking on mine. She still has my forearm in a vice grip. At least she looks soothed, and so no matter how irrational it is, I watch the floors click by until we reach hers, and she shuffles out with another grateful thank you over her shoulder. At least I was of some assistance. Before COVID, the medical profession felt powerful. We had whispered spells that wove a strong magic. We had tinctures and tricks and genuinely well thought out strategies. For the last two years we have been screaming into the wind, watching helplessly as our patients are decimated despite our best efforts. We lost heart. We lost our confidence, but it feels like the tide may be turning now. Perhaps, as my mother always said, fortune favors the brave.
1: Thank you, Anne. You're a skilled emergency room doctor. You've also studied psychology and mechanical engineering. You've moonlighted as a forensic pathologist in a government mortuary. You can play the piano and the cello and ride a motorbike. You're a rescuer of greyhounds. You are a serious polo player. And now you're a best-selling author. Besides surfing, Is there anything you can't do?
2: Yeah, no, surfing definitely gets chalked up as um, not trying that one again. (laughs) That um, it takes a lot more skill than it looks. (laughs) That was an epic fail. And let me tell you, there's a reason why people, um, you know, in the wars they used to cut people's Achilles tendons, it's a mechanical thing. It's not like you can't walk because of pain or you just actually physically can't walk. It's just a mechanical fail. It's the most awful feeling.
1: There's a throwaway comment in the book that you were shot in the chest a decade ago. And then, of course, you ripped your Achilles tendon. How many times have you been rushed to the emergency room as a patient? And what was it like being on the other end of the stethoscope?
2: Um, so to be honest, I've touched wood, only been there um once, which was when I was shot. When I tore my Achilles tendon, I sort of made my own diagnosis, so we just headed for the surgery. But yeah, yeah, when I when I got shot, I was very, very grateful to the person on the other side and um actually had a bit of an awkward moment when I was discharged from the hospital and I called him back and I was like. Hey X and he was like yeah and I was like thanks for saving my life and he got like all embarrassed like no problem no problem <laughs> I was like
0: okay that's what it's like on the other side of that. yeah
2: so yeah it's it's not so it's not so cool being on the other side but I was very very glad of the absolutely amazing service he literally ran out to the car picked me up dashed me in and we made it by minutes so it was it was a pretty hectic time
1: I imagine crime writers like Dion Mayer watch whodunits and try to solve the murder before the detective. Do you watch House and try to identify the mystery illness before he does?
2: Um, so I actually don't have a TV, so I've never really been a TV watcher. Um, <laughs> so I haven't watched any of those programs, but people tell me that they really are amazing. It sounds a bit like like they might be a bit like another day at work and I might find myself second-guessing them. I did see one Sort of series that was based on an emergency room, and it was very sort of unrealistic. You know, it was all about sort of romances and and sort of eye contacts that were prolonged over technically impossible things that were happening on the table. So that put me off a bit. But but the rest of the the, the series now I haven't I haven't watched those. But I it probably would be a little bit of a race to see if I can get there first. It, that could be
1: true. Although from the book, there was quite a lonely man who did propose to you. So so maybe there is some truth to the romance in emergency room.
2: Yeah, that was our shame. He was like such a nice man, Mr. Dapper, with his color-coded belt and shoes. And he said, oh, doctor, I hope you know CPR. I was like, why? He said, <laughs> because you take my breath away. It's like, No. <laughs> <laughs> There's me behind my full PPE with my eyes darting around going, oh my goodness. And then he took up the role of like a proper stalker and I came around every day with bunches of flowers. It was awful. Shane was a very sweet (laughs) man.
1: You write about a professor who taught you advanced life support and he repeated that he wanted his team to run towards an emergency, not away from it. When did you know you're one of those people who is able to run towards an emergency?
2: So I'm not really sure that there are that many people who actually do that naturally. I think sometimes people, I mean, I had an interesting experience the other day when I I was driving and there was a cyclist who was knocked over and I stopped to help and I didn't have any equipment. And another person stopped to help and he, he was actually a doctor as well. And he kept saying, we need to resuscitate her. We need to resuscitate her. And I just wanted to say to him, you don't have any equipment. So how do you propose we're going to resuscitate this patient? You know, he was the sort of person who sort of jumped in and said, we need to do stuff, we need to do stuff. Um, but it was sort of out of touch with what we actually had to do anything. With. So all it did was stress us all out because he was sort of shouting and 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 everything was sort of getting more chaotic. Um, so I'm not sure that anybody sort of naturally w- runs towards an emergency if they know what they're in for. And that's exactly why um, the prof teachers with – sort of simulators. So it's all very well to learn in a book what you should do. But he's he's got a fantastic doll and he actually even gets people in who, who literally come staggering into the room with a kind of um, made-up axe stuck into their chest, gasping and screaming and fall on the floor. And it's amazing how it makes even the most experienced ED doctor panic. You know, they're like, oh my goodness, get on the bed. No, stay on the floor. Oh no, can I get some help? You know? Running towards the resuscitation is, is not easy if you know what you're in for. And um, also, you know, people bring, certainly one of the EDs where I worked, we had a baby that was near drowning. The baby was actually fine, but um, the father literally ran into the ED and threw the baby at the nurse, like literally threw the baby through the air. And the nurse caught the baby by the foot, you know, and it was this kind of sense of like, I've got the person here over to you, you know. I think most people in that situation The whole purpose of the training is that you don't panic because most people, if thrown a baby that's not breathing, would just stand there and go, oh, my goodness, you know. So the training and that all those simulations are about saying, I'm going to try and trick you in as many ways as you can and you have to keep going back to the same algorithm, find your place, stick to what you know, don't get freaked out or phased, you know. And exactly. I mean, in a lot of hospitals, you shout resus, everybody runs away because they don't want to get involved, you know. And I think in the ED, the training is that if somebody calls resus or if there's somebody who's in trouble, you run there and put your hands on the patient. That's the training.
1: And the cyclist that was knocked over?
2: She was fine. she (laughs) survived. Yeah, she was fine. She was fine, actually. I mean, it was a bit of one of those situations, a bit like when I was shot, everybody said, oh, what ambulance service did you call? I was like, no, no, there was no time for an ambulance. It was like literally drag me to the car put me in there and drive. So, you know, sometimes you make that decision not to wait for an ambulance. With that lady, we, we made that decision and we put her in the car and took her to the nearest ED and I phoned ahead and said we were bringing her and she was fine. But it was very stressful having somebody shout at me saying, resuscitate her. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? I don't have any equipment. I don't even have a pair of gloves, you know? Anyway, after that, I bought a medical kit for my car. You'd think I would have one.
1: <laughs> Being an emergency room doctor, is an extraordinarily stressful, exhausting, and high-adrenaline job, and the stakes are extremely high. Do you sometimes wonder why the hell you ever decided to become an ER doctor?
2: Oh, yes. In fact, probably yesterday. (laughs) I was like, no, not more patients. (laughs) It's a very rewarding job. I mean, you do get to change the course of people's lives, for sure. It's intrinsically meaningful. It's a privilege to be in that role. But there are many times when you want to literally just bang your head on the desk and go, why me? And yeah, I mean, it is a very stressful job. You know, I think if you choose to specialize in other things, a lot of my friends say it's same old, same old. You know, if you do feet or shoulders or gynae or whatever, you only do that and then you get tired of it. I can tell you that I still see something new every day, which is a, a gift, you know, to have a job where you see something new every day.
1: One thing that does come across quite strongly in your book is that having a sense of humour helps deal with all the trauma.
2: It certainly does. And some of the nicest doctors I've ever worked with have got the most bleak, wicked sense of humours. But I think you either have to laugh or cry, you know. And I think that there's a time for humour. I mean, mostly if patients come to the ED, they don't really want you to joke about what's going on. But every now and again, people can kind of see the light side of it and you can make light of a situation that obviously is not, you know, life-changing or critical, but could be construed as funny. But I mean, mostly I don't joke with my patients about stuff. In fact, sometimes people say to me, "Are you joking, right? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't joke about that. I joke about a lot of things, but I would never joke with you about your health.
1: What do you hope your books achieve?
2: Well, I would hope that they would achieve people kind of seeing what's been going on for healthcare workers for the last two years. I mean, it's been pretty crazy out there. I was reading an article yesterday saying that the Canadian system is literally sort of on the verge of collapse because half of their staff has left with literally almost no notice. It's like now that the, for us certainly looks like this wave is kind of going down and it's that kind of lull where you just think, I can't do this anymore. And, um, you know, I think that that's a big problem. I think that people don't realize how burnt out healthcare workers are. I think that what's become clear to us during the pandemic is you can have as much equipment, as many ICU beds and ventilators as you like, if you don't have healthcare workers, nurses in particular, but but doctors and porters and, you know, people to open files and admin staff and all of those people that kept showing up. If you lose those people, the system will collapse. The system can't run without those people. And um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, partly to tell people what it was like on the other side, that even though it looked like we were calm and collected and organized, um, we were all running around trying to get ready for something that we didn't really know what we were going to have to get ready for. And from a system that we knew and a kind of house of cards that we had built and knew had some fragilities, we certainly saw COVID coming. And I think all of us were deeply fearful about what was going to happen. So I think that's part of it is telling the COVID story. And part of it is telling the stories of the people that I've seen and been had the privilege to be doctors for and the people who made it and sadly the people who didn't and kind of just writing it all down in a big story, keeping a record, keeping a diary. I mean, I started writing really to kind of help younger doctors to figure things out. It's more like a handbook kind of thing, but it turned into a story. I mean, all the stories are true, but they're written now as a story rather than a medical handbook.
1: What lessons have we learned from COVID?
2: Um, I think for me, one of the most important things is how we cut people off from their families. I think that was a big mistake. Um, I think given the time, again, families would have taken the risk to go into the ICUs and the high cares and, and spend time with their family, even with the risk that they could have been exposed to COVID. I think that was very difficult for people to say goodbye to their parents and to their siblings and even to their children at the doors of the ED or at the ambulance and literally not be allowed to speak to them, see them, have no feedback from the hospital. I mean, that's been crazy. I think we've learned what bravery is about. I mean, I wrote in my book about the ECMO team, you know, that was that was killed in that um, helicopter crash. You know, those guys were just amazing. They, you know, to to give up your life to save a stranger's life. That's really. Pretty much something you know to give up your life to save a, a person you know's life or your child's life is a different story but to to risk your life to save a stranger's life is takes a special kind of person you know.
1: And what lessons haven't we learned?
2: If I think back on it, it's been like a sort of an apocalyptic time. I suppose we still haven't really learned to communicate. That still sort of is a, I think will always be a problem, really. I'd say there are a lot more things that we've learned than that we haven't. I mean, I think people are really, certainly in South Africa, really tried very hard to do the right thing. We were following like three months on all of the major first world places. And we had fantastic guys like Guy Richards, who runs uh, the Jobic Big who just kind of just kept us online, kept us on the groups kept us all up to date, kind of kept adjusting, changing protocols every day. You know, We'd run out of beds. The guy who runs our hospital would be down there making plans, changing POI beds, thinking on their feet, trying to make sure nobody was turned away. And because all of us thought if that's our family, we would like to get them help. We wouldn't want to be turned away. I think we've learned a lot more than we haven't learned. Certainly for me, I've learned which of my many colleagues have just, I mean, in my first book I wrote about them just rocking up in the ED to come and help us. Most of them hadn't actually seen a patient with pneumonia in 20 years, but they pitched up and they said we had to help and they didn't need to come there. They they could have stayed at home and stayed away from the pandemic, but they didn't. And that, you know, those relationships in, with those few doctors, we go forward as like the core of the people that stood together. And it's like, once you've done that, I think your respect for each other and for the nursing staff that stuck to their guns, you know, I don't think you, you'll ever get a relationship like that. I guess it's like people who live through a war together you know, people who fight in a battalion together. You know, they have something, some, some respect for each other that it doesn't matter what else happens, it'll always be there.
1: And finally, you've held your breath since the 5th of March 2020 when the first South African patient with COVID was identified. When will you exhale? No. <laughs> yeah,
2: you know, I don't know. I mean, it was very funny. During the first wave, I, um, I just couldn't bear to get back into PPE. So I had to get a packet of medication from the bottom of the patient's bed in the... And the patient had COVID. So I literally like held my breath and ran into the room and grabbed the bag and ran out of the room. And as I ran out of the room, the, the physician saw me and he said to me, you were holding your breath, weren't you? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, it's not going to help. You're still going to get COVID, which I did. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do feel a bit like I've been holding my breath since then. Certainly whilst doing CPR, it's been very stressful. I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping the virus is beginning to be attenuated. Touch wood seems to be giving more like a flu now than a a serious pneumonia. And let's hope it turns into a bit like the SARS and the MERS and all of those other respiratory virus peaks, which seem to come along every 10 years like a hectic thing. And then going into like an influenza A where we're going to have, you know, some seriously sick people every year, but nothing like what we saw in in the third wave, I'm hoping.
1: Holding My Breath is a heartwarming memoir with some stories that will make you laugh some stories that will give you a lump in your throat, but all the stories will make you grateful for Dr. Anne Picard and the other dedicated healthcare workers in emergency rooms who save us from ourselves and from Grimm. Thank you, Dr. Picard.
2: Thank you so much for the interview. Lovely to chat to you.
0: This exclusive Books Homebrew podcast was spread far and wide with the help of Vodape. Vodapay is a super app that is available on all mobile networks. On the app, anyone from any network can send and receive money, pay bills, and shop the amazing deals. All in one place. It really is one app for anything and everything. If you like it, Vodapay it.